Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. And Father, we want to just take a moment before we rush into the Scriptures and just acknowledge, God, our, our need for Your Holy Spirit. Lord, to quicken our hearts and minds to understand the spiritual things. Lord, as, as the Word says, natural man uh, can't understand the things of the Spirit. And so we, we truly need uh, Your Holy Spirit to guide us, to direct us, to be our teacher. And You've promised as a good Father to give the Spirit to those who ask. And so we ask right now for You to bless this time in Your Word. Lord, we realize the Bible is the authority for truth, the, the baseline. Uh, Jesus said, I am truth. And this is where we come to learn about Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that You'd open our hearts, open our eyes, our understanding uh, to Your guidance and direction and to Your truth as we look to this interesting uh, but somewhat messed up family, Lord, in Genesis chapter 27. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we follow the storyline of God's covenant through Genesis, it's been really the highlight of Genesis. In fact, if I could go back in time, I would retitle our, our series, Covenant. Because the covenant is such a huge part of Genesis, and you see it carried through. God's plan of salvation, His promise to save the world, and it's led us to this lineage of men. Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, or Jacob? We'll see. Now, God has already determined it would be Jacob. He said it before they were even born. But tonight what we see is the covenant passed to one of these men in real time, And as this covenant plays out and is passed down, it's not pretty. It's an ugly thing. We see family feud taking place in in the family of God. The Bible in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, it says, Let God be true and every man a liar. And we're going to experience that when we get to heaven. We're going to realize, as honest as we hope to be, we'll see that only God in His holiness was 100% true all the time. No deceit, no shifting of shadows in God, but in us, what we like to sometimes stretch the truth, twist the truth, bend it a little bit, and just flat out lie, don't we? We have this inside us as our sin nature. Let God be true and every man a liar. And what we're about to get uh, inside, this inside look into God's anointed family, surprisingly, this is God's chosen family, and they're not a perfect family. And what we're going to see is deception, conspiracy from all of them. Like there, there is, it's hard to find a hero in this chapter. We like to find the hero of the chapter. There really isn't. I'll point out some aspects of heroism in this, but really it's hard to find a true hero in this. The whole family's kind of messed up. Isaac conspires to bless Esau in secret. Why? Because he knows Jacob's supposed to receive the blessing. And he knows his sweetie, Rebecca, knows Jacob's supposed to get the blessing. And so he's got to do it in secret. So he plans this this secret meal with, and meeting with Esau to bless him, conspiring with him. Rebekah and Jacob conspire to lie, to deceive Isaac, and to steal the blessing from, es- from Esau. So, interesting chapter. Now, a lot of people will read this chapter, and they see it as a, as a huge moral failure on Jacob and Rebekah's part. And um, they, they, they say they lied for selfish reasons. Rebekah was just playing favorites. Jacob was just being a, a, a sly, you know, heel grabber, just looking out for number one, trying to be um, advantageous for himself. And though that is 
taking place in here, I believe there's a little more. Um, some other people actually interpret this chapter in, in a different way, and that is that they were driven by faith, that they had good intentions. It wasn't merely selfish, that uh, they, were, they were lying to prevent a greater evil from taking place. Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly say one way or the other. It's kind of up to us to, to read and to determine, okay, was this an epic moral failure? Or did they have really good intentions? Was this like they were preventing the covenant of God from falling apart? And I would have to say that both are at, at play here, that both are taking place. Epic moral failure, yes. But good intentions operating in faith, yes. I, I, I lean towards this messy combination of things taking place here. And I would say that as we, before we go into this passage, that this is a description, a good explanation of someone with zeal without knowledge, of someone with faith without the patience that should be coupled with faith. I feel like that's what we see here. They wholeheartedly, guys, they wholeheartedly run in the direction of faith, not realizing that faith is allowing God to work His will in His time. It's not just sprinting after the promises. It requires patience. Now, I was talking to Pastor Robert about this actually last night, and he gave me a good illustration. He says, Jacob reminds me of a dog I had. He said that there was this dog, and I would feed this dog, and it's like I had this piece of steak. I was going to give the dog the steak, and the dog was there, but he was so anxious to get the steak, he'd jump up and like chomp at my hand, Robert said. He says, and that's what Jacob reminds me of in this chapter. Like, he wants the blessings of God, and that's a good thing. He's waiting for them. He knows it's promised to him, but he's just chomping at the bit. And he, and he in a sense, takes matters into his own hands and, and does something contrary to God's will and design, and he lies, and he's deceitful. But it's been said that it's better to do the wrong thing, guys, with the right intentions than to do the right thing with the wrong heart. And that's true. And I think there's a little bit of that taking place here. Is it right that they lied? No. But did they have good intentions? I believe they did. I think they did. I think they saw the promises of God perhaps at stake. And so they went after them like that dog trying to chomp after the stake. The Lord looks on the heart and judges not just our actions, but He judges the motives of our heart. And what's interesting here is He seems to honor this action of faith. Even if it's slightly misguided and they're in error, God still ends up honoring it in this chapter. So with all that in mind, let's uh, look at this account and I'll let you decide for yourself. I won't say thus saith the Lord, but you, maybe you think it's just epic moral failure. Maybe you think it's, they're just heroes for, of the faith in this chapter. Or maybe you think it's somewhere in between. But let's check it out and you can determine for yourself. Verse 1, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, he'll actually live another 50 years after this. So he's in a rough spot here, but somehow he kind of recuperates, recovers, and he lives another 50 years. But what's interesting, guys, is even though the Lord has already said to Rebekah, Jacob will be the chosen son. You remember the promise? Rebekah prayed and, and God showed up. And He said, the older will serve the younger. They should know this by now. It's actually been about 75 years. Jacob is about 75 years old now in Esau at this point. Some scholars 
estimate. So Isaac, Isaac should know this by now. Hopefully that's a conversation he and his wife have had about the covenant, about the most important aspect of their existence and about their, their children's existence is that Jacob was determined to be the promised child. So Isaac should be aware of that. And even though Isaac knew that Abraham had to cast off his firstborn son so that Isaac would be the chosen one, Isaac still doesn't get it that, that, it's, not, that it's Jacob. He still thinks Esau should be the chosen one. That is his desire. Now, remember too, Esau is daddy's pride and joy. Like Esau was the son that played all the sports that daddy liked to watch. And so like you'd, you'd have Isaac out there watching little, little uh, um, Esau playing football, linebacker. He's probably a big burly guy, right, playing linebacker. And he's like, you know, go son while Jacob's home. He's the kid that likes to stay home and read and be quiet. He's a smart kid, right? But he didn't really click with dad. That's kind of the picture you get here. So he plans to have a secret blessing ceremony with Esau and he's going to make this happen. And guys, it just goes to show that our expectations for God's plan are often wrong. What you expect God to do in your life, or maybe for other people around you, it's often wrong. The Bible says God's ways are, are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He doesn't do things the way we would think He would do things. He is God above. If you could understand Him and predict Him, He probably wouldn't be big enough to be God. Right? God doesn't do things our way. And we see this all over the Bible. He doesn't choose the one you would expect to choose in the story. I, I was thinking about Peter and Paul in the New Testament, right? You have this guy, Paul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. This dude was a master of the law. He came out of Judaism. He was, a, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. So he was like a purebred. He actually knew what tribe he was from. And this would be the perfect guy to send to debate all the Pharisees, to, to, to go to the Jewish nation and lead his people. Paul even had zeal for the nation of Israel. He even said at one point, I would perish so that my nation would be saved. Like that's how much I care for the Jews. And yet God sends Paul to the Gentile world. He does an amazing job. Like God knew what he was doing. Paul tears it up in the ministry and evangelism. But who does he choose to send to these religious, snobbery type Pharisees? He chooses Peter. A common fisherman, uneducated. In fact, it said that when they would look at Peter, they could tell by his, his country accent that he wasn't from around. He's, they're like, you ain't from around here, boy. You know, He was a country, backwoods, hillbilly kind of a guy. Fisherman. They said he was uneducated, and they could tell, though. They were surprised by how he spoke, being uneducated, but he sounded like he had been with Jesus. But that was Peter. He, was, he really wasn't this educated. You wouldn't think he was qualified to be the one to go after the nation of Israel, but he was the one God sent. I think about the, just the selection of the disciples, this ragtag group of brothers and people who were, would otherwise be enemies on the streets. But right, you had this position of treasury, someone who had to look after the donations. And you had Matthew, who was a tax collector, who was awesome with numbers. You had all these other guys who were really upstanding men of integrity, and Jesus chooses Judas to be the treasurer. The dude he knew was stealing from the treasury. Like, I wouldn't have picked, knowing what I know, I probably wouldn't have picked Judas, you know, but Jesus, God doesn't do things the way we do them. His thoughts are not our thoughts. It was the case with the Jewish nation and the Messiah. 
they were expecting God to go one way with the Messiah. And he, when Jesus came, it was a curveball. Jesus did not act or look like who they thought the Messiah was supposed to look like. And they didn't receive him. They wanted the law still. When Jesus showed up, they wanted to keep the law and to keep playing their game. They wanted to keep their Esau of salvation by merit rather than following the Savior. It happens so often that we miss God's plan because of our expectations. And I want to ask you, what misconceptions might you have about God's plan for your life? What are you just hoping and holding on to and hanging on to, expecting God to meet your expectations? Are there things that you take great pride in that you're waiting for God to bless? Like, man, this is my zone, God. Like, I'm so good at this. I'm, I'm good with numbers. Lord, why don't you bless me? Give, give me a career. I could make a lot of money. And if, I, if you just let me be rich, I could do so much for your kingdom. Maybe that's not God's will for your life. Maybe that's an expectation you need to wave goodbye. It's very possible that he has different plans for you than what you expect. It's very possible, as you look to the pages of Scripture and see example after example, that he might not exalt you in your areas of expertise. What does the Bible say? In my, Paul says, in my weakness, his strength is complete. His strength is made perfect. It might be, might be the obscure areas of your life, the, things that, the qualities you overlook that God exalts, that God blesses and uses for his kingdom. It might be the people around you that you don't expect him uh, to gift and, and the, the underqualified people around you. Those might be the people he exalts to do great things for his kingdom. Let's not pretend like Isaac that we know what God is all about, right? Let's be open-handed with these plans. For me, uh, early on, when I got saved, uh, my, my Esau, in a sorts, was getting signed to a record label. Like, I wanted, as a singer-songwriter, I, like, I wanted to get signed. I wanted to make it into the music industry. Lord, you know, if I could get in there, if I could get a single, get on the radio, I could make huge impact for you. And that's not how God directed. And I had to learn how to be open-handed with my path with what God wanted to do. And we might not fully understand it on this side of heaven. At this point, Isaac's going to freak out when he sees what God does here, when, when things shift on him. We might not get it on this side of heaven, but when we get to heaven, when we see his plans, we'll understand they are far better than anything you or I expected. So much so, guys, that when we see them and we stand before the Lord, we'll be thanking him and praising him for the disappointments we went through in life. We'll understand these disappointments were, uh, brought about amazing glory and led us into glorious paths eternally. Verse 5. It says, Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speaking to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord uh, before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may prepare them uh, from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. It's like, well, he can't see, but he could still feel 
my smoothness. And his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. Rebecca's already got a plan here. So here we have Rebecca and Jacob. They start scheming. And again, though there's plenty suggest, to suggest that their motives are good with regards to the covenant, there's really no excuse for their approach. Like it's just deceptive. It's lying. He's like, I don't want to appear to be deceptive. I don't want to appear to be like a trickster. Well, you appear to be deceptive when you're deceptive. You don't, you don't seem like a liar. You are a liar, Jacob, when you lie. That's, what, that's how that works, buddy. But perhaps they thought Isaac wouldn't be reasonable at this point. But it does make me wonder, why wouldn't they just go in and talk to him? Why wouldn't they just go in? Why wouldn't Rebecca go in and be like, honey, you know, you know what God already said. You know what's supposed to happen. How could you do this? Maybe they thought he wouldn't be reasonable about it. Maybe they thought this was the best option. In which case, that would reveal their family dynamics were a lot worse off than face value. Like, I can't, I can't talk to, to Isaac about this. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a sensitive spot. It's better if we just trick the blind guy. Like, let's just trick him, okay? You might ask at this point, what's the big deal with this blessing from Isaac? What is the big deal about his declaration of blessing? And why would it be so crazy if he got upset and cursed his son? Like, is it, it's just words, right? Couldn't God do what he wanted to do despite what Isaac says? Now, God can do whatever he wants, right? However, guys, as you look at these blessings from the patriarchs through the pages of Scripture, you realize they have significant bearing on the future events of those receiving them. These aren't, these aren't just, you know, a proud dad giving his son some encouragement. These are, these are important. It's because... As they're speaking, as these patriarchs are speaking, they're doing so as prophets of God, representing God in these moments. So it's more than just Isaac sharing his heart with his son. The first account we see in the Scriptures is God Himself declaring blessing and declaring curse. God set the pattern, and guess what? God said it, and it happened. Right? He blessed Adam and Eve, and then they sinned, and He had to, he had to sh- explain to them the curse and then he had to curse Cain when curse sinned. He let Cain know what, what the curse would be upon him. We later see this. We assume this was passed down the godly lineage, this declaration over the sons through this chosen line. But we don't see it again pop up in Scripture until Noah. And of course, we remember Noah blessed Shem and Japheth, and he cursed Ham. And what he said came to pass. What Isaac says in this chapter will come to pass. In the coming chapters, we'll see Jacob proclaim blessing over his 12 sons, even over Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And what he says comes to pass. So though we might be tempted, guys, to view these as just regular old guys whose words are like yours and mine in these moments, there's more to it than that, guys. There's prophetic power when these guys take this moment of of blessing or cursing. God has, in a sense, commandeered this lineage to work out His plan of salvation. So the blessings that these patriarchs give, the curses they give, have efficacy. They they have impact. They have weight. They're, They're operating as the oracles of God in these moments. That's, that's why it's so important. That's why there's good argument to show that Jacob and Rebekah were really 
doing what they thought they had to do to save the covenant, lest Isaac bless the wrong person. But we know God is in charge. God is in control. If God already said it, it would come to pass. But it does remind me of Balaam. Do you guys remember the prophet Balaam? He's a hired prophet. He's, he's got the gift of prophecy. For some reason, the Lord allowed him to, to continue to use his gift, but he was basically hired to the highest bidder. And Balak, one of the, the enemies of, the, of Israel, a king, hired him to curse Israel. And so he goes to the top of the mountain. He, he tells Balak, hey, like, I'm going to open my mouth, and, and whatever comes out, comes out. Is basically what he says to Balak. And so he opens his mouth to curse Israel, and blessings pour out of his mouth. And that's similar to what takes place in this moment. This is a sacred moment. And God is ultimately controlling what is said and to whom it is said because He's speaking as the oracles of God. That's that's the big deal. That's why Isaac's blessing is such a big deal. Verse 14, So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So Rebecca gets busy. She gets to work here. She's she's slaving and and and, and cooking, and she's all mom-style arts and crafts, like making her son's costume you know, putting this goat costume together. And it's like, she's, this, she's a rocking mom. Like, she's pretty amazing, I think. And I, if not for Rebecca, if, if not for the stigma of lying and deception, I, I'll tell you guys, this would probably be one of the most preached texts on Mother's Day. Right? Like, Hannah, Hannah is a popular text in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1, where Hannah, like, brings, dedicates Samuel to the temple. Like, you want to be a mom that really cares about your children's walk. What, what about Rebecca? Like, nobody gives her credit for this. And here she is slaving. Like, this is a woman deeply concerned, guys, about God's plan for her son and will do anything to see it come to pass. I love this about Rebecca. In fact, I love Rebecca in the Scriptures. We see very little about her, but what we see is she is a hardworking woman. She is a faithful woman to God and to her family. She serves God by serving her family. That's what we see with Rebecca. And God blesses her. God goes before her and blesses her for doing this. I think the world needs Rebecca's. The world needs women like Rebecca. Ladies, if, if you're looking for biblical women to aspire after, Rebecca is one of them. Not necessarily in her deceit, okay? But women who want nothing more than to see their children walk in the promises of God. Moms that think that way. That moms who go to battle for the righteousness of their children, for the souls of their children, to disciple their children. That's Rebecca. She loved her kids. She knew Esau. I'm sure she loved Esau, but she knew what he was like, and she knew that God had already determined that Jacob would be, would be the promised one. So she wanted to do what she could to make that happen, and I don't blame her for doing that. And that's why my heart kind of... I, I kind of I favor the, the, hero, the heroism in Rebecca in this moment, right? When I was in Israel, the, our tour guide said something very intriguing about the conflict in the Middle East. Because the Arabs over there are constantly warring with the, with the Jews, with the Israelis, and the Israelis are constantly warring with the, the Palestinians and, and, and the Arabs and the Muslims in that region. And the reality, guys, if you don't understand this, Israel just wants to exist in peace. 
the, the Arab Muslims want to annihilate Israel. And that's at the root of the issue. That's why there is not peace. Israel will say, I will gladly lay down my weapons as long as they stop trying to kill us. And the, and, and the Arabs, the Muslims say, well, that's, there's no deal there because we, we want you dead. We want you gone. So there will not be peace. And my, my tour guide, he said something very intriguing about this dynamic. He said, in fact, he quoted a, um, a woman general for the Jews uh, from 50 years ago. I forget her name. But she said that the day that the Arab women begin to love their children more than they hate the Jews, there will be peace in the Middle East. What a profound statement from a woman who's seeking to do all she could for the blessings of, of the nation of Israel. That was kind of what Rebecca was like. She was going to do what she had to do. She was going to love her son into the promises of God, no matter what it took. And that's, that's the power you women, you truly do have over your children. You can direct the next generation. The love of a mother is powerful. And I love that exhibited here in Rebecca. Verse 18, so he went into his father and said, my father, and he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I, I am Esau, your, your firstborn son. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. And then at this point, Isaac should have been like, okay, well, I'm blind, but I'm not deaf, Jacob. Right? But he, he goes along with it. He's, he's kind of buying into it. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you've found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, because the Lord, your God, granted me success. So he takes the lie a little bit further by, by actually using Yahweh, invoking the name of Yahweh. And people get on Jacob for this. You see some commentators are like, and at this point he takes the name of the Lord in vain. He does, right? He does. He does. And again, I find it interesting that he's not reprimanded at any time. So there's a lot of dynamics going on here. This is a very interesting text. I spent a lot of hours reading up on this text. Um, and he might be thinking at this point, well, technically, the Lord did grant me success. I mean, those two goats, usually they're at the other end of the backyard. And I just opened up the kitchen door and they were right there. Uh, hallelujah. You know, maybe the Lord, maybe he was thinking, well, the Lord technically did. Hi, everyone. Pastor Sean here. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to those of you who also share this content and help us get the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus out into our community. We would love to invite you out to our in-person services. We meet every Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Tucson's East Campus. In the meantime, keep reading, keep praying, and keep worshiping. God bless you. Down.